Hello and welcome to The Real Maxime Podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, and private investor. The golden rule of insurer unit economics is that in order to make money consistently in the long run, premiums collected ex ante should exceed the ex post cost of realized risk. As a quantitative hedge fund manager, I spent the better part of the last decade trading and building conditional asset pricing models in the context of contingent claim instruments, such as options or credit default swaps, both a form of insurance. I'm particularly interested in the inner workings and business of risk pricing, specifically how to improve ex-ante conditional expectations of outcomes. My guest today is Paul Monasterio, co-founder and CEO of Kalepa. Founded in 2018 with Daniel Hillman, Kalepa is dedicated to enhancing underwriting performance and driving profitable premium growth for the commercial insurance industry. Kalepa's AI-powered co-pilot software enables underwriters to focus their time on the highest ROI opportunities and to quickly evaluate and optimally select risk. Paul is a big proponent of the idea that AI is about augmentation instead of automation. Machines can accomplish some tasks, such as processing thousands of data points in a matter of seconds, better than humans, but they are notoriously poor at judgment. Hence, insurance companies that embrace machine augmentation for their workers will achieve more accurate, consistent, and faster underwriting decisions. Kalepa's co-pilot software automatically learns what the best underwriters are doing, allowing other underwriters to make a more accurate underwriting decision. Paul and Daniel met while at APT, a leading cloud-based software company which helped large enterprises measure and increase the effectiveness of key business initiatives. APT was acquired by MasterCard for $600 million in 2015. Paul's experience at APT and then Meta really shaped his approach and ability to operate in a high-growth environment, which is fitting for the stage that Kalepa currently finds itself in, with fresh Series A funding from IA Ventures, Inspired Capital, and other leaders in technology and financial services. Paul graduated from the University of California at Berkeley with a dual degree in mathematics and nuclear engineering, followed by a PhD in nuclear science and computational physics from MIT. I hope you enjoy our conversation. My background is, I guess, not necessarily too dissimilar from that of many founders who have come to the U.S. for their education. I grew up in Venezuela, so I'm Venezuelan by birth, by background. My family has been in Venezuela for several generations at this point. So I did all my primary, secondary education there, and I came to the U.S. for college. The move to come to the U.S. for university was driven in large part by some participation I had while I was in high school in math competitions of all places. Up until then, I actually thought I was going to go to medical school in Venezuela back in the early 2000s. But then starting to partake in math competitions gave me a perspective of what else was out there. And that ultimately ended up with me deciding to come to school in the U.S. So I moved to the U.S. in 2002 to start university. And I had been to the U.S. a handful of times before, mostly through the East Coast, but I ended up going to school in California. So I went to Berkeley for my undergrad. I'd never been to California. Certainly had never been to Berkeley. I think the impression in Venezuela at the time, which was not necessarily too dissimilar of what Berkeley was for those who knew about it, was less related to the university and what I call the academics, which obviously are strong, but more about what Berkeley was in the 60s, which is the cradle of the free speech movement and hippies and the like. 
So it was kind of interesting when I was telling people I was going to Berkeley, people asked my mom, like, what's Paul going to do there? <laughs> but that certainly has changed over the years. I had a great, great time and really was a very formative experience for me moving to the U.S., coming to this country. And, you know, I've been here since, for the most part. I'm an American citizen now, and we're past the intervening 21 years now. Spent a lot of time in different places after being a number of years in California for college. I moved to the East Coast for graduate school, moved back to California, moved back to the East Coast and moved to Asia for a few years, and then back to California. And then I've been in New York City now for about seven years, most of that time building Kalepa. I think it's a really good compressed timeline on something that's quite exceptional on having our prior chat and preparing for this conversation, obviously looking at your career trajectory and academic accomplishments. One of the things I always say is successful people, and I know you still think of yourself as like building Kalepa and, and you will see through it and create an amazing business, but just graduating and going through the programs, the academic programs that you went through is an accomplishment in and of itself. It's no small feat. And I'm always fascinated by the fact that successful people tend to gloss over the details, whether it's the companies that you work for leading up to this startup or getting a PhD at MIT, which very, very few people are ever qualified enough to do. So I wanted to dial back a little bit back in the early days. So what was it like growing up in Venezuela at the time where you're growing up? And was math, because you're obviously very scientifically inclined, and all of your jobs have shown, including the company you've started, is very analytically inclined, right? And you seem to have a knack for it. Is this something that came naturally? Or was it something that you developed a skill and were motivated to aspiring to leave Venezuela for greener pastures? Yeah, it's an interesting question, right? I grew up for folks who know anything about Venezuela, they probably know of Venezuela for not having such a great last 20 to 30 years. And, and that's the time I grew up, right? So I was born, I'm 37, so about 38. And for the most part, I've seen Venezuela, unfortunately, to be largely in decline during that period of time. Venezuela's heyday was the 1970s, so when during the oil crisis, Venezuela became one of the wealthiest countries in the world. And I grew up when I was a child. That was a perception, right? Venezuela, for example, compared to other South American countries, was a lot more urbanized and expensive, right? If you were, for example, coming from, say, Peru or Colombia or even Chile at that point to Venezuela, you'll find Caracas to be extraordinarily expensive, right? It would be like going from most places in the U.S. to Manhattan, right? And, and part of that was because the oil wealth power the economy. However, you know, that that was actually a problem in disguise that I think ultimately led to the downturn that the country has experienced for the past two and a half, three decades. And, and that certainly is not the case anymore, right? Venezuela right now has a very, very severe economic and socioeconomic problems. So I grew up in that, right? When I was growing up, Venezuela was a relatively prosperous country. And my family, while not wealthy by any means was was fine, right? So, you know, I, I grew up in what I'll call uh, the strongest period in Venezuela. So I did not have really, or didn't think about emigrating until very late in high school. So my plan up until almost the time I graduated high school was to stay in Venezuela. And for a long time, you kind of ask about 
the background. I have been interested in science, in math from a young age, but actually my favorite subject growing up in Venezuela when I was a child was actually Spanish. So it was what would be English in the U.S., right? It would be actually much more humanities-oriented. And I did fine in science classes. I did well, but, but that was actually the focus. And in the earlier part of my probably middle school years and such, I thought I was going to go to medical school. So that was something that interested me. I started becoming more interested in biology and the like. And like in many places, medicine is an important career. I think it takes some vocation. Funnily enough, my sister, my younger sister, ended up becoming a medical doctor. But I changed gears a few years before I graduated high school. And as I mentioned, I started participating in the math Olympics because I found it interesting and realized I was good at it. And so that experience, I represented Venezuela internationally on a number of those, showed me that actually something more mathematically inclined was actually a better fit, more interesting to me. And that's what ended up happening, right? So when I came to the U.S., when I went to Berkeley, I double majored in math and nuclear engineering was a subject. And the reason for choosing nuclear engineering was somewhat arbitrary. I knew I wanted to be an engineer. I found that to be a more, what I would say, a more practical application of some of the things I like in math. But when deciding which engineer to choose or which engineering discipline to choose, I was frankly random. I started looking at various majors and I said, like, nuclear engineering, that sounds really cool. <laughs> that was basically the extent of my decision. With the thinking that once I start taking the courses, if I don't like it, I can switch and I could become an electrical engineer or a mechanical engineer or whatever it might be. I ended up enjoying it, right? It's sort of an interesting blend, academically at least, of math, of physics, of chemistry. So I actually found the curriculum for nuclear engineering to be quite interesting. And, you know, in parallel, I, I majored in math. And through that process, when I went to graduate school, I thought I was going to be a professor. So I went to get my PhD. And again, nuclear physics, with the intent of becoming a professor at the end of that. But throughout my PhD, I realized that there were other things that interested me, that I wanted to explore, and that the pace of movement in academia wasn't exactly my cup of tea. I still love science. I still really enjoy that process of discovery. But the pace is not for me. The thing is, it's slower moving. It takes longer to see the fruits of your labor. So that's what drew me to say, hey, you know what? I've developed a certain set of skills and a certain mindset, analytical thought of simplifying complex concepts, which I think are the important things that one develops in science when he's doing science at a good level. There are other areas where I could apply that. And I don't think that realization is in any way unique. I mean, you increasingly see many, many more people from scientific backgrounds, from academic backgrounds shifting into finance and management consulting and tech, et cetera. And I think they bring something that is helpful to those industries. And I think that was the case for me. I think it's ultimately about the ability to master logic and achieve a certain level of rigor, right? In the way you set assumptions, in the way you make decisions, in the way you optimize within a set of constraint to generate at the time, what you believe to be the optimal outcome. And so I think some of these backgrounds, same thing can be said of law. I have friends who went to law school and have become very successful business people or traders. And I think the same thing applies. So I hear you there. And I think it's just a good foundation because I always say it's kind of like when you go into a meeting 
and if you overdress, it's easier to lose your tie. But if you go into a meeting wearing a hoodie, you better be Mark Zuckerberg because if the dress code is not hoodies, then it's going to be really hard to dress up. And the same thing can be said about some majors, and not to diss on any major, but if you do put yourself through the rigor of a scientific program, a legal program, and you will come out stronger whatever you do down the road. Yeah, I think there are a certain number of things that one learns in some of these disciplines that are, I think rigor is the right word, right? There's some level of intellectual rigor that can be applied elsewhere. And with that said, though, there's certainly different areas in which folks that come from backgrounds such as mine don't naturally excel at, right? And those are things that one has to learn. You know, I actually had a recent conversation just like this one with actually another friend of mine, and he has a background in business development, right? He's a career executive in sales and marketing. And I was talking to him that for people with backgrounds such as mine, highly technical, highly rigorous, many folks like me dismiss the importance of sales, right? They think a good product goes itself, for example. And that's, I think, a common failure mode of many technical founders. And what I've learned really through the years, that's something that I did not learn through my education, but I've learned through my experience is how difficult and how important and how different it is to be strong in sales and business development. Those are completely different skill sets that, that one has to master. And that frankly, folks that don't have that as part of their DNA or their education need to, need to respect that that's a different discipline and that's a difficult discipline and those who do it well know what they're doing. And I've had to learn that, right? I had to learn that through not the first 15 years of my academic career, but the last 15. <laughs> no, and it's one of the most important things is to be able to recognize, especially as a leader, what you need to learn, what you're good at, what you're not so good at. Some things you can learn and eventually become good at. Some things you'll just never be as optimal or as performant as others. And also, I think as a leader, and we'll get to that when you're thinking about human capital and building a team, too many founders have this idea that they need to excel at everything because they started the business. And ultimately, it's more about the efficient allocation of capital to achieve the vision that you've defined. Most people will not come up with the concepts of the vision that you've come up with, but they might be excellent participants or contributors, right, to execute on that vision, right? And so it takes a team to get that success, that finish line. So because of that, the transition that we're discussing right now, what do you think actually prepared you well for what you're doing today? Was it subsequent to your academic endeavors, some of the companies that you joined, and appetite for what you were doing there, some of the problems that you might have identified there? Like, What do you think prepared you on the path to eventually one day saying, I want to start a business? Yeah, definitely. So I think there are, there are a few angles to that question that I find interesting, right? The first one is, was spoken about my educational background, but certainly after I left academia, I joined a company called APT. APT stands for Applied Predictive Technologies, which is what happens when you let an MIT person name a company. And APT was interesting to me because in a sense, it allowed me to have my cake and eat it too, which was as I was finishing my, my doctorate, and I wanted to explore some of my other interests in business, common 
option that folks choose to do is become management consultants. And I think the reason that that career path is attractive to people who are figuring out what to do is that you get exposure to a number of industries, a number of different problems. And APT had that, but had a very analytical and software-focused angle to solving or addressing this type of management consulting problems. That was the idea of the business, right? The founders were folks from Oliver Wyman and McKinsey who said there are a number of questions that a management consultant my answer around pricing strategy, marketing strategy, capital expenses, that can be addressed more rigorously using the scientific method and, and implementing that through software. So that's a company that drew me to join them and some of the early days. And that was actually my formative experience in business. So I was at APT for about six years after my degree and grew with that company. Right? I joined in a role that was hybrid of what now would be called data science and client success in the early days. I rapidly shifted into more of an operations and business development type of role. Part of that was because I moved to Asia to, at that point, expand some of the business we had there. We had one person that we had moved for our first client in Asia, moved this person to Taiwan. Then I they sort of needed help. And I said, hey, I can help. And I happened to be working with one of the clients that was in Asia, really out of lock of the draw. And what ended up, what you know, was going to be six months in Asia, building the business there, and there being three and a half years. And you know, we built a presence in Japan, in Australia, in Southeast Asia. So, so that was a great formative experience for me in understanding business, in understanding building, and how much I like building. So, to your point on what kind of turned that spark of entrepreneurial desire on, it was that, and that's also what I met my my co-founder at APT, and then similarly. Why I ended up in insurance was also through that, through my work at APT. You know, my work at APT, APT started mostly working with retail companies, helping companies understand a number of uh, pricing, merchandising decisions, but then quickly expanded into other verticals as we saw that the use cases or the technology could be applied to retail banking and then after retail banking, commercial banking, and insurance. So my co-founder started the business development point, our insurance practice. And I did significant work with carriers at APT, really throughout the value chain from distribution to underwriting to claim. So, so that really, those were the two core components that came together when we founded the company, which was we, we understood never as insiders, you know, neither my co-founder nor me have worked in insurance for 30 years, but as advisors, we work closely with people in insurance on determining how to use software and data to impact and improve the way that certain decisions were made. And also, you know, seeing how we built APT from 30-some people to 600 people, which was about the size we were at when MasterCard acquired the company in 2015. So APT was definitely my formative experience in business, in building, in financial services. I spent a year, a little bit over a year, after APT at Facebook, well, now Meta. That was an interesting transition. I joined a, after APT was acquired by MasterCard. I spent a year at MasterCard. And at that point, the two organizations still remained pretty separate, I would say. But APT became, was folded into what is now called MasterCard Data and Services, which is how MasterCard thinks of things beyond the transaction, right? Their value-added services to merchants, to financial institutions, etc. And I was leading the technology and services practice for APT globally and kind of took similar role in that data and services organization more broadly for about a year, right? And then I had conversations with Facebook as a client 
and they poached me, right? So that was kind of my transition into big tech, if you will, from MasterCard. It was what I learned on Facebook was was interesting, which was something that I'm sure will be very helpful for me and for Calepa when we're larger, right? Which is just how you scale at that size. In the year and a half I was on Facebook, Facebook grew from something like 15,000 employees to about 30,000 employees. Just a crazy rate of growth at that scale. And there are a number of things that are very different operating at that scale. I actually didn't really like operating at that scale at that point. And I went the opposite direction, of course, which is start from, from zero. But I certainly learned a number of things there that I value and that I frankly do see when they're going to be applicable at Calepa when we start getting certain milestones of scale that, that we're frankly approaching quickly. So this is fascinating because, again, very, very blue chip names in terms of the acquisition of APT and then Meta. What were the things that really stood out in those organizations that you say you've got this mental set of notes, the playbook that you're going to tap into when and if you get to the stage or this situation that you've observed there? So you obviously developed as more than just a technical resource, right? Like you started developing this ability to understand the needs of customers, why customers need certain things and how to meet them and how eventually to monetize that in ways that actually serve the customers. But in terms of the organizations themselves, what were the things, the key takeaways that you think will stay with you for the rest of your life in terms of seeing that success, right? Very few companies grow and succeed the way an APT did, right? And certainly very few companies ever get to the stage that Meta did. What were the things that stood out? Yeah, so that's a great point. So one thing that I'm very passionate about, and frankly, as a company, we are very opinionated about is culture. And I think I think a lot of people talk about culture in a variety of ways. Ultimately, the way I think about culture is probably closer to the way that someone like, like Ray Hastings has spoken about culture in his books and about the Netflix manifesto, et cetera, which is, is something that helps you make decisions, particularly decisions that are non-obvious. And I think that's a very practical way of thinking about culture and it's something that resonates to the way that we have built Calepa and continue to build it. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because while there are a number of tactical things I have learned along the way, right, from how to sail into large enterprise clients, how to service those accounts, and how to build software that scales, right? There are a number of things like that that I learned at APT, I learned at Facebook, I learned MasterCard. But ultimately, the things that I think I take with me and have tried to crystallize and refine are the parts of the culture that I think help those companies be successful. Frankly, there are some parts that that we don't bring with us because we think that they're not necessarily the parts that will help us in the journey. But take APT, right? APT, I think, did two things extraordinarily well that were a big part of its success. I mean, the first one actually was customer focus. And customer focus is something that I think a lot of people talk about. But APT's hiring philosophy was unique. Uh, It was definitely much closer to that of a management consulting firm than that of a, a software company, which was, by and large, the company groomed all of its talent. So the company hired very, very well from universities, right? Campus recruiting pipeline was very strong. I would argue, actually, our lateral hiring, bringing in senior-level talent, was frankly a lot weaker. But we hired extremely well from college and allowed people to develop very quickly and gave a lot of responsibility to to a lot of young people quickly when they kind of showed what they could do. And, And I was a beneficiary of that. But the one thing that we really cultivated was folks who as I mentioned, normally would be 
coming from very academic backgrounds, from elite universities, et cetera, the reality is, hey, you know, in the real world, there are a number of things that are just very important. And, and we really are here to use this technology not to help ourselves, but to help our clients, right? So if what we're trying to do is we need to go to, who knows, Green Bay, Wisconsin, to talk to a retailer that has 700 convenience stores and how we help them actually improve their sales of X product. It's a, that is the real economy, right? You know, the real economy is not a lot of times what, you know, folks in, at MIT might be thinking about, right? Like the real economy is solving these problems that actually turn out to be the real problems of GDP. And that's why it is banking, it is retail, it is energy, it is healthcare, it is defense and insurance, which is where I'm now, right? So that part of really understanding these real material difficult problems and applying rigor and applying data, applying technology to them is really something I took from APT. And culturally, we really were focused on that, right? Let's focus on solving the customer's problems. That is something we bring to Caleb. We're not solving, we hired very smart machine learning engineers, and we're not trying to find the shiny object just for shininess sake, but what is it that this is helping us do to solve the problem? So that was there from there. From Facebook, the value I take, and it's one of the values that we're taking into Calepa that I think Facebook or now Meta does very well is experimentation. So Meta has built a very, very significant infrastructure to be able to evaluate ideas rapidly and see which ideas have merit. And that, you know, there's obviously the tactics behind that, but just the mindset, the mindset of experimenting and experimenting intelligent, of knowing which decisions are and are not reversible, knowing when we can do something to learn quickly versus having a, a philosophical discussion that can be settled by information. That's something that I find very important. And I think Meta does that very well. I think that has been a big part of their success. You cannot do that everywhere. There's things that you need to get right 100% the first time around. But there are a number of things where that iterative process allows you to get to a better answer quicker. And again, that is something we've carried on to the way we do business and we build Akalep. As I sit here and I think of all these wonderful conversations I have with folks like yourself, and just the learning and the exposure that you bring, especially for listeners, to give them an inside window into the life and what makes those companies so special, and also how you're able to go on and create your own special environment. Back to the human capital aspect, what I always found was very interesting is, I think that on the whole, and having gone through investment banking, sales and trading, recruiting myself, management consulting firms investment banks have a great recruiting process. I mean, I think you could say whatever you want about those firms and how they're being run, and people have varied degrees of just opinion on the subject. But it's one thing that they do really well is hire and select well and train well, right? And I know when you build a business, you don't necessarily have the luxury of the time and resources to put and apply into those programs that these large organizations have. But they truly put human capital selection and development at the top of their priorities, right? Because it is all about human capital. And that's why they're also a formidable set of people to hire for other types of businesses. Because back to our initial conversation about the grounding, the rigor, 
that's the next layer, right? You typically have students that have done really well in those rigorous fields and that go on and get trained in ways that will allow them to apply their approach to pretty much anything, right? And so that's fascinating. It's, it's really interesting to hear your thought about APT. So you talk about your co-founder. Talk to us about the inception phase of the business. Sure. So you met your co-founder at APT, right? I did. And what was the initial thesis behind your idea, right? If I think in terms of like the basic purpose, problem, solution, how did you assess the market size? That's one thing I'm hoping, given your mindset and your background, that you were very, very thorough and analytical about it and sizing it. And then why you thought it was now was the right time, I mean, at the time when you started the business. Yeah, absolutely. So I met Danny at APT. Danny had joined APT a year prior to me on a business development function. Danny has a unique background, my co-founder. So he's also an engineer economist by training, but he's Israeli. And prior to coming to university, he served in the IDF, the intelligent, the Israel Defense Forces, in one of the intelligence units, right? And, and interestingly, this has actually now is a common background in InsurTech. So <laughs> InsurTech is actually a very popular destination for highly technical Israeli founders. But Danny actually was a business development professional, very good at it. And we met doing work at APT in financial services, um, as well as working together in building the business in Australia and New Zealand for APT. So it was kind of interesting building that from nothing, getting our first few clients. We're spending a couple of weeks every month there. So, so it was a great journey. So when through that, I mean, Danny and I started thinking of, of ideas, but nothing really crystallized until really after I had left APT, he stayed for three years post the MasterCard acquisition, integrating the sales organizations. But then we, we kept talking about different things that we could do. And the idea and the thesis that ultimately became Kalepa started a little bit broader, right? You know, we came from understanding how data and technology at large could be helpful in making better business decisions. That was the core of APT's raison d'etre. And we started understanding more and more about the specific problems of various industries where this could be applied, right? So that was part one. The second piece was, okay, we identified that increasingly companies were utilizing what we then called third-party data more effectively. But there were two industries in particular that did that very effectively and in a very systematic way. So the two were, interestingly enough, one of them was the one that I went to after APT, which was Meta. So digital advertising, right, where you have really any data asset, you can turn that into an audience, test whether targeting that audience with that new data point is better than without it. And if so, this is useful. If not, it's not. And the other industry that at that time we thought, well, is doing this very well is one that's near and dear to your heart, which is the capital markets, right? You know, if you have a data asset, you can backtest it, see if that strategy has any alpha. If it does, you deploy it until it no longer does. And there's a systematic way of assessing whether you can productively take that. And our idea at first was, well, there ought to be more use cases like this. So let's start looking what those are. And when we started Kalepa, a broader idea of how can data be used to drive the same type of impact that is done, that is doing capital markets and digital advertising in other industries. We buried, That lasted for about three weeks. So in three, four weeks, we quickly converge on insurance. 
because in speaking with folks across industries, we realize underwriting is an obvious application of this idea. And it's one where the impact and the ability to do this effectively now is massive. But then we realized that data was an ingredient and not the answer. We're talking to you know chief underwriting officers at large carriers at AIG, CHOP, et cetera. And what asked them, so you know, let's talk through kind of what, what are your problems in underwriting? Well, you know, it's this. And it's like, I feel I need more data. I'm like, that makes perfect sense because you want to know more about the risk and the exposures. That's exactly right. I'm like, what do you do with that data? Well, you know, we take the data, we have our data team and our actuarial team review it, analyze it, see what the quality is, where it has any signal. Okay, so far so good. And well, then we hire Accenture and then build a dashboard. And four years later, we have a dashboard and then we give it to underwriters. Great. And, and they don't use it. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so data is not the problem here. What you really need is better underwriting. So there are a number of components in turning that data into better underwriting, into faster underwriting into more accurate, more precise, more profitable underwriting. And that's when we quickly decided, okay, we need to build software. We need to build software that helps companies underwrite, that takes all the small problems that you need to solve to turn that data into something of value, entity resolution, combining data from different sources, the analytics layer, the interpretation layer, the user interface that leads to a better decision. That's what became Copilot. That's what Calepa. And that's when we raised money. That's when we raised our first round of capital in 2018, once we actually converge on the fact that we need to build software. To your question of market sizing, yes, we were thorough and analytical about this because by nature we are of that persuasion and the type of investors we brought on board are a similar one. Though the funny thing is when you look at the market we're operating, the size is so enormous that it almost doesn't matter, right? So basically, a lot of people don't know this, but insurance is 8% of world GDP. So it's actually, depending on the year, it sometimes is larger than banking. And it's no surprise. There's a lot of insurance out there for individuals, health insurance, commercial. Commercial insurance alone, so the business of providing a safety net for businesses when things go sideways, is a trillion dollars, give or take, in premium, which is in revenue per year globally, right? So there aren't that many industries that have a trillion dollars in revenue every year. Insurance is one of them. And the way we've been thinking of the market is when you take that trillion dollars of premium in commercial insurance, the impact of moving the needle on the underwriting of that premium, which is ultimately the key activity of an insurance carrier, is to understand and price risk, which is underwriting, and moving the needle there um, just has massive impact, right? And when you're having massive impact, the most critical lever of a trillion dollar industry, you have a lot of room to build generational business, a business that excites all of the team members we have at Calepa because we know that we can make a pretty big difference. And taking a step back, there are many, many amazing businesses that are operating smaller markets. And frankly, a lot of founders that operate in those markets that have been wildly successful. Many of them are my friends. But I do get excited about the fact that what we are doing, what we're building, the impact we're having, even in the early days, translates into a massive, massive economic impact, given the size of the insurance industry. So by essentially indexing yourself to arguably one of the largest sectors in the world, and we know financial services and insurance are some of the most profitable sectors in the world, you're essentially creating a growth vector here by aligning yourself with that. So I guess what you're trying to say, 
And there's an old adage, right, that says if you're going to work on a problem, let it be a big problem for that reason, right? Because if you can crack the problem, the distribution for that problem is massive. And back to your point around an, an area that I'm very familiar with, which is capital markets and identifying alpha, unless you are dealing with a large enough market, the capacity really isn't that big. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, right? It's not like if you're going to solve even a sliver of underwriting workflows for insurance broadly, and it's a lot of ifs, right? But let's just assume you execute. Again, your distribution is massive. There's no capacity constraints on a business like that in terms of scaling it, right? Which is fascinating. So many things I want to drill into specifically on the implementation over the year and the logistics thereof. Maxim, one quick thing I want to add to that point, though, which is very interesting. I mean, insurance is massive. And the choice for us, certainly from our investors' perspective, they look at the TAM and salivate, right? And that's fine, right? Obviously, we are rational economic players. We're building a business for scale and operating in a market that has the scale that it does and our ability to impact it the way we do has massive upside for us economically, right? Which is exciting for a number of people, including our team. But there's a more what I'll call philosophical or emotional or motivational aspect to it. I personally, and my co-founder Danny as well, get very excited by problems of this scale, right? There are many important problems in the world from big problems and small problems, but it does get me out of bed every morning, the fact that by doing this, we're moving the needle into something big. With that said, though, there are many, many problems that are very interesting, very exciting, and don't have that scale, but you can operate them differently. I have a very good friend. He's a very successful founder, phenomenally intelligent guy, and has built a great company. And this company sells shampoo, right? And he's, he's actually been significantly more successful than I am, but I just don't get that excited about shampoo. But that's just me, right? Like that, That's a personal thing. I get more excited about insurance than I get excited about shampoo. But for whoever gets more excited about shampoo, that is the business they should be working on, not insurance. I bet you'd be really excited about the formula behind the shampoo. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to us a little bit about just briefly, again, you people gloss over this, but you were able to convince investors 2018 is an interesting year, right? I mean, I think the world was in an okay place, but there were some rumblings on the macro front at the time before 2019, which was a really successful year for risk and capital allocation. How was the fundraising environment like at the time? What was your process like? Was it easy? Was it difficult? Uh, what was your approach to setting up the right foundation to find the right partners? Yeah, I mean, that last part, finding the right partners, was really what was most critical for us. Um, we know that the investors that we bring on board, particularly in the early days, it's a long marriage, right? They're going to be with us for hopefully decade plus or sometimes even more. And I wanted to make sure that we brought on board people who could help us on that journey, who share similar philosophy when it comes to building the business and the power of technology to impact these, what I would call complex, highly regulated difficult to sell into industries, which sometimes actually scared a lot of founders and investors, but frankly, is the economy. That's the real economy. And those are the problems that I personally am excited to tackle. And then three, that there were high commitment investors. 
I think there are a lot of investors out there. There were in 2018, certainly not as many as in 2021 and 2022, but in 2018, a lot of investors. And I think there are a lot of me too investors, right? You want, you want to follow, you want to do that. And that really doesn't resonate with the ethos that we have at Calepa. We want high commitment people at every function on the team, and that includes the cap table and the board of directors. So that was very important for us. And we talked to a number of funds, spoke to very thoughtful people, spoke to very, also spoke to some not very thoughtful people. But when we met the team at IA Ventures who read our seed round, that was phenomenal, right? So, so Jesse Berruti, who was our lead investor, he took the entire seed round and he actually explicitly, basically negotiated for that. I'm so committed. I won the entire round. So our cap table was just IA for until our, our Series A. And, and we like that. And they have been tremendous partners, right? IA is a very, very thoughtful partnership. It's a small fund in terms of the number of people, but their impact, they're one of the top performing funds. I think their fund number two in particular might be like a top 1% fund in terms of returns. They invested early on Datadoc, on the Trade Desk, on WISE, on Flatiron Health, on Komodo Health. So these guys think of difficult problems in a very fundamental way, and they're just phenomenal individuals to work with. So we're very lucky to meet them early in our fundraising process for our seed round in 2018, when we really were only, we were just, Caleb at that point was a slide deck, right? We had talked to many, many underwriters and underwriting leaders to validate our ideas and help us think through what we're building, but there was no code written, right? When we raised the seed round, Calepa was just slides. And a couple of things I whipped together in Python and R, right? Like there really wasn't a product. So Jesse and the IA folks, you know, made a bet on us as a team and our vision that this massive industry that is difficult to move was ready to be moved and was ready to be moved and, and transformed by a number of people, but that the technology we were building was going to be critical in helping them underwrite better. So yeah, it has been a great partnership since then. We have since obviously brought other investors in the cap table, but we are eternally grateful to IA. And frankly, they have been exactly investors that we wanted them to be. It's great to hear you say this. Now, I'll just add something. However, again, very important, right? You compared to many, many, many startups that raised seed rounds in that era of easy money. And you were not completely at the peak of the froth, but it was getting there. Is you say you didn't have a product. And for listeners, I just want to insist at this juncture and moving forward in a world where capital markets are allocating capital to opportunities that should exceed in their returns the cost of capital, right? You can't go into a meeting with an investor and just on an idea that hasn't been on some level vetted and validated with potential customers, right? I mean, one of the things I know, even at a seed stage, right, that we always look at is, have you gone and built a matrix of conversations you've had with customers and really laid out what the needs are and how do you think you can plug into that matrix, right? And what are the needs that you're going to fulfill? So it sounds like you had done the work there. And you and I know, and I've coded a lot and built products and algorithms in my career. Once you have the concept, once you have the architecture, the business architecture, and then coming up with the engineering side of things will flow. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's going to happen overnight. I'm not saying there won't be technical, complex engineering issues to solve for. 
But I actually think in terms of complexity, the hardest thing to solve for is, do you actually have a market for what you're selling, right? So I think from that standpoint, when you walked into those meetings, you're already ahead of the game, right? Because there's no doubt that you had the credentials as a founding team and you'd gone and done the homework, right? I mean, you'd be amazed at how many founders still don't go out and actually go and talk to customers. They just have this vague idea of like, here's a few reports, here's a TAM, this is how much we can actually obtain from that, and that's it, right? Sounds to me like you'd actually gone and had conversations that don't completely de-risk the investment value proposition, but at least firm up exactly what this could look like if it played out according to what you're pitching. So let's talk a little bit about like who are your main target customers and markets? Like what are the dependencies and do you have competition at this juncture? Did you have competition at the time? Yes to both, right? So in terms of the customers, our customers are pretty much anyone who underwrites commercial insurance policies. So most of those players are insurance carriers, and some of them are pretty well-known names in the U.S. of the, the AIGs and Liberty Mutuals and Nationwide's of the world. But they're, you know, the insurance industry is massive. So there are a number of players that people have not heard of ever that might have a billion dollars in revenue or $500 million in revenue every year. So there are a number of mutual companies that tend to be more locally oriented, more regional. There's hundreds of them. There are companies called MGAs, managing general agencies or program administrators that have that basically underwrite on behalf of ultimately a risk taker and have underwriters and therefore also use co-pilot. There are wholesale brokerages that have underwriting abilities, reinsurers that do that. So pretty much anyone who's underwriting commercial risk is a fair game for us. The bulk of those tend to be carriers and MGAs. And that is really our client base from very large carriers to some smaller carriers. But again, a small insurance carrier is not by any means small business, right? Like this, a small insurance carrier is a hundred million dollar in revenue company. So that's kind of the universe of companies that we serve and that are using Copilot. And we continue to evolve our capabilities to address a larger and larger subset of, of that segment, but for that sector. But, but it's massive. There's, these are thousands and thousands of companies in the United States alone and a comparable number outside of the United States as well. In terms of what the competition was, the, the problem of better underwriting is by no means new, right? So this is a massive market. It's a trillion dollar market. Underwriting is the more critical lever in driving the profitability and frankly, the market capitalization of an insurer, right? So you have to imagine that improving this is not a new problem. This is not being solve so far, certainly not because of a lack of trying. It's just because it's difficult, because some aspects of the technology that could make a difference to it hadn't been there before. And that's the problem we're laying into, right? Which is, it's not a niche market where we're the first people to discover the problem, by no means. The problem is well understood, but we think we have a unique solution. So historically, the tactics that insurers have used to improve their underwriting effectiveness have ranged from really better training, higher, better underwriting, better processes and technology. And they have built things internally that can be as simple as spreadsheets. Sometimes they call it a tear sheet where they're pulling in some information, kind of more procedural based. They might buy a bunch of data from different vendors. Like I mentioned, we kind of had that idea before, cobble it together and put it on a dashboard. But increasingly, there have been a number of players that have tried to start putting together different pieces of that underwriting journey to form more complete underwriting platform. 
So there are a number of incumbents in particular policy administration system space, which has been the software capabilities that most carriers use to rate, quote, and buy in a policy. Those guys have been building capabilities there. But in order to get this right, to actually deliver on the real business results, driving additional quotes, lift in quotes, lift in binders or bind rate, and improvements in profitability, so a lowering of the combined ratio of these policies, you need a number of pieces to be in place and all of them to work, right? The theory and the practice are very different. In order to get these to actually yield the results, you need to be able to put in place a number of components, which we have done. We've gone through work of putting all of those together. So generally speaking, when we go to an insurer, the most common competitive question we get is build versus buy, right? It rarely is there's a wholesale alternative. The alternative is there are a number of pieces that we can put together to mimic something like Copilot. And frankly, that's not an unreasonable perspective, right? You could basically say, I can find a number of components, I'll piece them together. Uh, what we have found is that the practical realities of getting that done don't tie up. You know, this takes a long time, it's very expensive, and the results are subpar. But the more important one is you tend to get stuck on a universe where you're optimizing a number of what I would call intermediate metrics. Oh, you know, I want to take the files and I'll build a solution that parses these files and turn them into a data object that I marry to someone else. And then you start optimizing a number of KPIs for each of these, which once you put them all together, do not lead to the business value. So increasingly, we're seeing that just the ability that we have to help them get value quickly and basically work out of the box has been quite differentiated, right? So we put a lot of effort into solving a lot of these problems to ensure that we can do that. But now that we can, and that the product has the maturity to do that, it really is helping a lot of our growth because we basically tell them, hey, you don't have to trust us here. Just try it out and you will see. And try it out is not, it's going to be six months, a year, three years until you see value. Like we can turn this on for you tomorrow and you will see if it's driving value or not. And if it does, we'll scale from there. The easier you make it to convince customers that despite their ability and inherent skill to do what you're doing, that all in all adjusted, using your product as a cost of goods sold into their own inputs results in more efficiency and allows them to focus on their core business, the better one does, right? And so again, it goes back to the basics of any activity, even in your household, where can you do it yourself? Yes. Is it the best use of your time? Not necessarily, right? And so if you have providers that can come in and solve for that, you will always have an edge, right? Because to me, if you make it seamless to integrate the buy versus build conversation, unless you're facing a very, very particular set of enterprise customers that might have some R&D ambitions or might have very, very well-funded internal efforts and a pride of ownership, the famous NIH not embedded here, right? usually it's a winning value proposition, right? And that's why SaaS delivery of services as an input into other industries has thrived over the last two decades, right? Because of that, because ultimately, I think companies make a choice to say, you know what, it's probably also, think about it, just from an alignment perspective, you're better aligned in this case because your reputation is to deliver that piece of their cogs in the best possible way, right? They're devoid and also outside of any internal dynamics or politics that may exist internally that might get in the way of them executing. One thing to add there, Maxim, is the fact that 
you know, to a certain degree, this is a well-understood concept, but sometimes people don't apply in practice, which is different companies are good at different things, right? Which is, it is very, 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 very hard to run an insurance franchise. You need to have people who are experts in reserving, in actuarial science, in underwriting, in claims, in distribution, in operations, right? It is also very, very hard to build good software, to be good products. And you need people who are very good in machine learning and architecture and design to bring all that together. And what I've seen happen is that despite resources and massive resources and frankly, even data throughout these problems, the abilities of companies to execute strongly on both are not there, right? And and, an example I've written about and of good intentions not panning out is AIG made an attempt, and AIG, again, you know, blue chip, massive carrier, many resources, 100 years of data, tried to be something called Blackboard a number of years ago, their tech arm. And a lot of really smart people, a lot of resources, a lot of stuff trying to build technology to do better underwriting, in that case, with middle market underwriting and such. And they wrote it down for $250 million about two years ago. And then you say, well, why is that? Is that because people didn't know what they were doing? Is that because they didn't have the resources? Is that because the access to data? And you'll say, well, that's clearly not true. These are just different skill sets, right? So what we can do as a world-class technology company where 365 days and 24 hours a day, we are working on this problem of making better or helping our carriers make better and our insurers make better underwriting decisions with technology is very different than the type of problems that the carriers rightly are best qualified to do, right? And actually take that technology, but ultimately go and make the underwriting decision that's going to help you grow and grow profit. So I'm a strong believer in that, right? Bill versus buy doesn't mean that the bill doesn't work for some folks, but I use that as a cautionary tale with the fact that in these cases, it is just very, very difficult to be successful at both. What do you need to achieve escape velocity in your business now? We are, I think, at that stage, to be honest. It's been a lot of work to get there, but the product has reached the maturity on our brand, frankly, now that we are working with many, many more companies. You know, we're working with a lot of the largest carriers, with many smaller carriers, reinsurers, brokers, MGAs. We are the proverbial inflection point of growth. We're growing very quickly this year. I expect 2024 will be even faster. So I think there are a number of things that have played a role in getting us there. One of them has been just the product has continued to improve. We don't sit and rest on our laurels, but as we see new capabilities that would add value and that will help underwriters do a better job, we bring them on board. And that goes from big to small, right? Recently, we optimize the way that a news article can be summarized for an underwriter because there's a new technique in prompt engineering that was released four weeks ago. And a week after it was released, we had it in Copilot. And why is that? Well, because you can turn something that was taking the underwriter 10 minutes to do and something that takes five minutes, just double their time in the day. And that's, that's huge, right? But separate from that, as we've grown, build the maturity and, and frankly, the repeatability, you know, the platform just gets stronger and stronger, right? Right now, we're helping insurers underwrite billions of dollars of premium every year. And that, you know, that compounds, right? That means that the product is much more battle-tested, is being used in and deployed in a wide range of settings. We've integrated into a variety of very complex carrier systems, large and small. So we are, from a product standpoint, the product has grown to a point where it can support and address that growth. 
And then what's happening is on the commercial side is following that, right? Our traction has grown and it compounds, right? The insurance companies are rightly so risk averse. When they see new technology, they've been burned before by bad technology, by promises that have not been fulfilled. Bones, we have a track record of delivering on the promises and you know, saying, hey, we can actually show you value very quickly. Just try it out. That has done a lot of good for our business and we're growing quite rapidly as a result. That's amazing to hear and such an amazing journey. Have your initial core desires with respect to the outcome of the venture change? Are they pretty much still the same or have you reset and are you basically resetting to higher goals? Well, I mean, I think we, our ambition has been unchanged, right? When we started the company, the core ethos, there really were two reasons we started the company, then I started the company. The first one is the problem, right? Which is, this is a massive industry and frankly, an industry that has a PR problem, right? Insurance by no means considered sexy. I think a lot of people have gripes with it, but I personally think insurance does something very important, which is when insurance works well, it takes care of people when things go sideways and things do go sideways. And if you don't have someone to take care of people when things go sideways, they don't take risk because the cost of failing is too high. So I strongly believe that well-operating insurance industry is critical for society to grow. And underwriting is ultimately the decision of how you translate that into to what capital markets know how to do, which is allocate resources. So the problem and our ability to say, hey, we want to move the needle on a trillion dollars of economic activity, that's unchanged. And we're fortunate to have started to make a dent, the massive market, and to continue to grow and make a bigger and bigger dent every day. The second thing that prompted us to start a company is that we wanted to build a certain type of company, right? We wanted to build a company, you know, like many entrepreneurs do, that they would love to work at, right? With a specific culture, with a specific group of people. And I think we've been very fortunate to be able to do that so far as well. We are very, very proud of the team we have built culturally. There are a number of things that we take very seriously. We're very opinionated about and leave them. And I'm very proud that we do leave them and that I work at a company that is a company I wanted to be working at. So, so long as that continues to be the case, I would say we're being achieving our objectives. Now, the path is always in a straight line and every entrepreneur knows that, you know, there is, it's not even zigzagging, right? Zigzagging is probably too comfortable of a path to build a company. Many, many ups and many, many downs. But the core fundamental of why is it we're doing what we're doing is still there. I love hearing this because there's a sense of steady purpose and focus throughout this conversation and poise, really. It's just high level of confidence as to the problem, how you guys are going about it, the background that led you guys to think that you were the relevant people to solve it. And you refer to being opinionated. I think it's commitment, right, to this notion of culture. We, we say always culture eats strategy for breakfast. It is true, right? And so holding these pillars as important foundational blocks for what you built and just being steady and consistent around that, I think is very, very obvious throughout our conversation. So I've really enjoyed it. I think it's a great business. I agree with you that the scale is going to keep being very, very compelling for the space that you're in. And I'm looking forward to seeing you guys continue to progress over the next couple of years. So thank you very much for spending the time with us today. I think listeners will have drawn a lot of very, very useful and interesting insights from your experience. Well, I appreciate you having me, Maxime. This has been a blast. And thank you for the kind words. And hopefully you continue to have great success with, with the podcast and with radio as well. This podcast is produced by Rado Venture Management LLC, RVM. 
RVM is not an investment advisor. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, not investment advice.